Welcome back to Venture Studio. This is the podcast where your host, Dave Lerner, entrepreneur, angel investor in 60 plus companies and director of entrepreneurship at Columbia University, interviews the angel investors and venture capitalists who make up New York City's entrepreneurial ecosystem. I am your producer, Kevin Weeks. Remember, all of our shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Venture Studio and let us know how we're doing. This week's episode is part two of Dave's interview with Jerry Newman. And now let's head on up to the Venture Studio office. In the office, baby. Going up. You've lived it. You've done it. The, the rub is that so many people in the early stage space are just running around uh, trying to get into hot deals and not deepening their, their knowledge of a sector because it takes conviction, patience, discipline, etc. And I think a lot of people who are starting out in the industry, they're just worried they're going to just miss out on a lot of the stuff and the people to whom they report are going to be like, hey, uh, time's up, pal. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I, I hate making blanket statements because there's always an exception, right? And there's every every human endeavor. You can make a rule about it, and there's some exception to that rule. Um, but I think generally, if you if you as a a start, yeah, if you're starting as an angel investor and you can get into a deal, it's not a hot deal by, by definition. You are in it, right? So unless you you know went to high school with the founder, um, you know, which is the only investor in Microsoft went to high school with Bill Gates, right? I mean, it's if it's that hot a deal, they're not going to come to you, right? I mean, unless either you know the person personally, um, or you have some special expertise. And I think, you know, as a, a small investor, when I first started angel investing, I did get into some great ad tech deals because they felt that I had uh, specific expertise in that market from my time at Omnicom. Um, so that gave me a, a leg up. Um, it allowed me to, uh, you know. Venture capitalists would bring me deals and say, "Hey, will you look at this for me and tell me what you think?" Um, so, you know th- that you know m- my ad tech portfolio is probably uh, you know twenty x on the money I invested. Um, at least I haven't calculated it, but it's got to be. Um, and so it's you know um, it was generally a pretty good investment because I had the expertise in the market. So I, I do recommend that. I mean, I think you should invest in things you know. Right. I mean, that just makes sense. Um, and you should pr- not pretend that you know something that you don't. I mean, the, you know, the biggest mistake that I've made, I think, biggest mistakes have been um, thinking I know something I don't know. So looking at a product and being like, oh, I would use that product. Um, right. <laughs> and then, then you realize that you're the only person who's going to use it. Hmm. Um, it's like I'm the market of one. Um, but it, you're not going to go out. You're also not going to go out and survey your friends. Right. Um, and even even the part where you go out and uh, so I, I come from a construction family. I, my father was a construction. My grandfather was a construction. My great grandfather, my brothers, my uncles, uh, everybody's in construction. Um, and people would bring me companies that were trying to revolutionize the construction field. Um, and I would go to my brother or my dad and say, "Hey, what do you think of this? Like, you know, would you what do you think? This is it's, is this something that your company would use?" And they would inevitably say, "No, no." You know, we, we don't need that. We, we have whiteboards. You know, we have, we have clipboards. You know, it's, um, they weren't thinking about how to change their business. They were, they were very good at what they did, uh, what they do. Um, but they weren't 
really looking for ways to change their business. And in several cases, those companies have gone on to be quite successful. In one case, um, you know, my people in my family have started using the product that they had previously said they would never use. And you say, well, gosh, you said you wouldn't use it. They're like, oh, yeah, but it's great. Like they just, it's not their job to think about that, right? So even the due diligence is difficult to do, right? As it is for entrepreneurs themselves. You can't just go out and ask people to question. Um, you, have to, you have to actually understand what their problems are. Um, if you want, you know, and this is this typical you know, customer discovery, development, whatever they call it, um, the method, right? You don't go out and say, hey, would you use this? You say, hey, what are your problems, right? And um, it's hard to do that as an investor because you can't just call them up and say, hey, I'm an investor. What are your problems? Um, you know, calling up people at big companies. Um, the the best way to do it is to actually know those people and you know sit down and have drinks and have them tell you about their industry. And you you read the whatever industry journal is out there, which every industry has a journal, right? Um, and, and you actually understand what is happening. So so let me let me ask you this. Um, I want to get into why a little later why there aren't more angels in New York City. A lot of people uh, lose steam, quite frankly. But let's let's hold that in abeyance for a little bit. I just want to cover off a couple more topics related to, to your philosophy, your writing. Um, can you share with us a, just a, a, a small kind of description of the, the power law dynamics you've written about and how that informs your, your approach? Yeah, so I, you know, I wrote a, a post on power law of mathematics. Um, it, it was partly, uh, it, it really came out of my own um, problems with it, right? So every, every, I think it's common knowledge uh, or belief, at least among venture investors, um, and it really the entire innovation community, that uh, venture returns follow a power law, meaning that um, there are very few extremely large uh, outcomes, um, and most outcomes are, are not good at all, right? Um, uh, and it, this is a uh, you can, if you go, if you look at the post, you'll see a bunch of graphs and charts because I like pictures. But it's um, it's pretty clearly true that that you know that, that this is what's happening. That um, that you have a few companies which are really way outsized compared to everything else. Um, and I think that's you know it's sort of the, the dynamic. I mentioned this uh, in um, betting on the ponies. Like if you were in Facebook when you know as a venture investor, then you were one of the top venture investors. If you were in Google. You're one of the top venture investors. If you were in Uber, you're one of the top venture investors. If if you're not in those companies, you're not one of the top venture investors. And you know, so, so a few companies return almost all of the money in all of venture. Um, so that's sort of a commonplace. Um, you know, everybody says it. I've heard it my entire career. Um, and the funny thing is, when I was when I I was trying to build a model uh, so that I could make sure that I invested the right amount of money or I was investing at the right pace. Like, all right. I'm going to invest this much per year, and it's you know, how sh- how should I model my returns so that I know how much is coming back in, right? So, it's my money; it's not a fund. I, I reinvest the money that I make, um, but I need to know how much money I'm going to make so I know how much to reinvest, um, so that I can actually plan, you know, over the over the lifetime of how long I'm investing, right? Um, and I realized that I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't say, well, here's how much I'll make, or even here's how much I'll probably make. Um, and I, I said, well, it's a power law, right? So I should put a power law. And then I realized that I had no idea what that meant. Um, like, what does that mean? It's a power law. Like, how do I implement that as a predictive tool? Like, if it was a, a normal distribution, you know, a bell curve, that would be pretty easy to implement uh, into a model and say, well, 
you know, here's how much I'm going to make when, and here are sort of the, the error bars. And um, so I, I know the sort of distribution of how much I'll make, which is what people do for you when you invest in the stock market, right? You're, if you, they'll have some graph and they'll have like the main line and then we'll have like the two, you know, the shaded area, which shows the various different um, most probable outcomes. Um, and I realized I couldn't do that. And, and because the power laws aren't amenable to that sort of um, analysis. Um, so this is why the, the genesis of that post um, is to kind of dive into the power law mathematics and figure out why. So it was, it was really solving my own problem, as most of my posts are. Um, you know, it was also, I think, I, I like to say that, you know, given the number of people who actually read that post and, and the, you know, the, the, the rule they always tell you is that, um, you know, if you're writing something, every equation you put in, you lose half your readers. Um, that in fact there were probably about 10 billion readers of that post because there are so many equations. Um, I, uh, I I did you know I I yeah, I have you, crea- a, you created a new market basically that people <laughs> weren't aware of. <laughs> they all came out of the woodwork. It's ridiculous. I, you know I'm kind of surprised. I I don't you know I didn't really think that anybody else was going to read it. Um, but I, you know I do I, I really my bigger goal one of my bigger goals is I, I would like people to think hard about what works right I. I, I venture invest because I, I think it's important. I, I, I think that funding the technologies of tomorrow is the primary driver of human progress and human well-being. Um, and I, you know, I know it's a little simplistic, but I, I think uh, you know if you look back through history, the, the things that have improved lifespan, that have improved improved living conditions, right? They're they're all new technologies. And if we can continue funding new technologies, then we're we're actually doing something worthwhile, right? Um, but the problem is that finding new technologies is hard, um, and finding the right ones that uh, you, you can't really know beforehand that you're going to improve people's living conditions based on what you're investing in because products change. Um, so how do you do this? How do you do it well? Um, and and uh, you know, it, so if if there really is a power law, shouldn't we understand what that is? Like why it's working, how it came about, um, what are the implications of that? Um, and I, I'm not smart enough to solve those problems. I'm hoping to kind of get other people to think about them who are smarter than me. Um, and that's, you know, so that's what I write for. I mean, if I could solve them, I would just solve them, right? But I can't, so I'll write a post, and hopefully somebody reads that post and says, oh, well, that's interesting. You know what? I, I think I know how to solve that problem, um, which would be awesome. And I hope that they would write about it, you know? Yeah, well, uh, that, that that's part of why I was so looking forward to getting you on this show. So. Uh, we can uh, continue to expand the market of people who are reading your posts, who are responding to it, so we can we can make progress and like Peloton off off the heavy lifting that you're doing and learn from it. There was one other um, post that uh, got me a little worried uh, as an as a fellow investor. It was called the Deployment Age, and that was another one that um, you know received an enormous amount of attention and people who who want to dive in they you should just read that post uh because jerry you kind of summarized the work uh, of carlotta perez um she has this this grand theory about the evolution of technology and the psych the cyclic nature of technology development and deployment etc you kind of summarized it and then you took us through the age of industrial revolution the age of steam and railways the age of steel and heavy engineering and then in the age of oil, auto, and mass production, and now into the fifth cycle, the computer age, which you, you say started in the early 70s, the information tech revolution. And Perez is saying that, you know, we're well into that cycle, which eventually leads to a bust period. 
after that initial euphoria and, and tremendous capital coming into it. So I was kind of, I was reading that and in my simplistic way. I was like, oh shit, we're, we're, uh, we're getting towards the end of this last cycle. So what, what were you trying to say there at the end? You were drawing some of your own conclusions. I think you said money can still be made in this section, but maybe we're not going to see the massive behemoths that emerge from the early parts of, of one of these technology cycles. So this post has an interesting genesis. I, um, James Gross over at Percolate, um, who I've known for years, I had put some money into their company early on, um, and the guys at Percolate are really thoughtful, uh, smart guys. Um, they hold this uh, annual conference um, where they try to get – it's interesting because they're, they're not, it's not a conference to uh, blow their own horn, as most conferences are. It's a conference to get really interesting thoughts out onto the stage. Um, so they were the theme of their conference uh, that year was uh, the deployment age, um, and he called me uh, and said, "Hey, you know, you 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 like to think about this stuff. Will you come up and um, talk about Carlotta Perez's theories um, and explain them to the audience as sort of a precursor to everything else?" Um, oh, and by the way, you only have twenty minutes. Um, so <laughs> I said. Okay, that sounds interesting. I, I, I had read Car- Carlotta Perez's book, and so Carl- Carlotta Perez is an economist um, who is uh, part of the uh, part of a, an economics school that is uh, not the mainstream, right? So she talks about long waves of business cycles, which Schumpeter talked about, um, and she's also uh, very tied into the evolutionary economics school, which is sort of fashionable among venture investors, but not really in the mainstream of economics. Um, and, and her theory basically says that there are these long waves of economic development driven by innovation where there is some innovation that sets the stage for a large change in society. Um, and it goes through a cycle of at first being very small and, and not well supported. And you have people investing in that, those, that technology um, and the offshoot technologies uh, who are speculators, you know, financial investors who are looking to make money. Um, and at some point, when it becomes clear that that technology is actually successful, people start adopting it, um, or people have adopted it, people start to take it for granted, um, you can't really speculate anymore. Uh, you actually now have um, big companies investing in it, and they carry it forward, and they, there's incremental innovation as opposed to radical innovation, um, until at some point the, the uses of that tech, technology start to... Um, the, the, the opportunity space becomes full, right? So everything can be done, has been done, and, and there's not that much money to be made. And at that point, uh, everybody, all, all the people who have money and are trying to make money with their money, uh, switch to some other new technology because now that's a better uh, bet, even though it's extremely speculative, right? So you have these waves of speculation um, where people are investing in the unknown technology, building out the infrastructure. And then the second half, which is the deployment age, um, where people are deploying the technology into every possible aspect of life um, until at some point you, you – and, and, and that's not speculation. That's just you know, your normal investment. Um, until at some point those opportunities go away and then the investors all switch back to some speculative – new speculative technology. So um, you know, she identifies uh, these five different waves, um, the latest being the computer age, the information computer technology age starting in you – know, she dates it starting at around 1971 with the microprocessor. Uh, although, you know, I, I think obviously there were computers before that. That was the part where it really started to change society. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and she thinks the, the first half of the wave, and she's sort of like, she said this at one point, and then she kind of went back on it, and it's, it's been a bit of a um, unclear exactly what she believes, but if, if you look at her, the book and her theory, and you say, well, the first part, the speculative age, pretty much ended in you know, 2001, 2003, um, and now we're in the deployment age where the technology is going to be rolled out into things that are um, just making people's lives a little better, right? And it, it makes this a little better, makes that a little better. You just use it everywhere. Um, and if that's true, um, and, and there's a lot of indications that is true, then the role of the speculative investor, the financial investor in that period has ended. Um, and now the technologies will be carried forward by um, big companies who are investing in uh, improvements in the technology or using the technology to improve other things as opposed to people who are taking big bets on crazy ideas. Um, so, you know, this was the, uh, that, w- that was less than 20 minutes. I'm getting better. It, it, but, you know, it, it's, a, it's a pretty long post because I put in a lot of the supporting detail. I, you know, it's one of those things where I had read the book, um, but until he asked me to actually try to teach it to other people, I didn't really understand it. Like, you actually, to teach something, you need to know a lot more about it than uh, you do just to just to read it and think you have a surface awareness. Um, and, and unfortunately, um, in understanding it that much better, um, it started to influence my my own investing strategies. Um, so I should make it clear, I, I don't actually agree entirely with Carlotta Perez. Um, I, I don't think that there's only one big wave at a time. Um, and, and I think there's some things like, you know, so we're in the information communi- communications technology wave, and there's things about that which are certainly true, um, and you know the, the previous wave of you know mass automation, um, you know that that was certainly there. But overlying both those waves is a different wave, which is the um, the pharmaceutical, the, the you know the, essentially the the biomedical wave, right? So mm-hmm. you know if you look at people's lifespans, um, that that wave really starting with the invention of modern medicines, you know vaccines and antibiotics, um, the and and the the modern pharmaceutical industry. That wave is a much longer wave, and it's continuing today. So, but it, it, it's not coincident with the other waves. I think you can have more than one wave at a time, um, but I, I think you. Uh, but but I think there's only a certain amount of money to be um, put into any existing thing, right? And and you know her idea, and I, I love her thinking because she's a systems thinker also, and. You know, she says, "Well, you can't just push one part of a system forward. You have to. The whole system has to move together because it's all interconnected. So it takes a lot of money to change something. Um, you can't just. You can't say, oh, I'm going to invest in something completely different, um, some small but big idea. You know, a small investment in a big idea, and that's going to change the world because changing the world requires changing a lot of things about the world. And all of those things that you're hoping to change have to be invested in pretty much simultaneously for the system to move forward. So." I do think she has a point that you you can't, as a VC, just pick some idea which is outside of the mainstream, um, invest in it, and think you're going to change the world. It has to be uh, connected to other things which are also changeable. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, great, the, the car was awesome. Um, people, you know, uh, they started manufacturing the car, made it cheap enough for people to buy. Um, but if somebody hadn't invested in building roads and gas stations and fast food restaurants and motels, the it wouldn't have changed the world, right? It would have just been a useful tool. The systems aspect of it. But, you know, one of the things that occurred to me, like when I was reading that, I was like, um, where do things like Bitcoin and the blockchain, where does that fit into to her matrix? Or how do you see it? Is that the dawn of, of an entirely new cycle? In other words, should we, should we be, when we read, 
Carlotta Perez, when we read Jerry Newman, we as investors, we as people interested in, in innovation, should we be challenging ourselves to, to try to say, um, you know, are we, at, uh, are we at the dawn of something new? Or are we just, uh, is it going to be 20 or 30 more years until this cycle plays itself out? Is that, is that part of the challenge? Yeah, no, it is part of the challenge. And I think the, the thing that initially turned me off to Perez and the long wave theorists is that long waves are a bit too pat, right? Like, oh, the long waves are each 80 years long. Well, why would that be, right? I mean, what's the, what, why 80 years? And you could think of, you know, maybe sociological reasons for that, but there, it's really unlikely that each wave would be about the same length, right? So it seems a little bit too jury rigged. Um, I, so, you know, is the wave going to be longer? Um, Maybe. I mean, I, I think, you know, the blockchain is an extension of the current wave. I mean, you know, the, the current wave, the information communications technology wave, I mean, in the 70s, it was about building personal computers, right? Um, and, and software for personal computers. In the 90s, it, it was about building the internet. And those are two completely different things. But you could consider them part of the same long wave, even though each of them was a different wave. So, you know, if the blockchain, which I'm not a, I'm not a blockchain believer, but, you know, if it becomes the next big thing, then I think it's it, it is continuing this current that current long wave the information communi- information communication technology wave and that's fine. Um, I, I think the the thing that's more interesting to me is you know when you look at previous waves like if you look at the 1950s right so the 1950s was sort of the deployment age of the previous wave of electricity and mass manufacturing um, and you look at the things that were being done back then you know it was the era of yeah, so you're electrifying everything. Everything's going to be have ele- use electricity, right? Which electricity was a great new technology that um, caused a lot of different things in society to change. Um, but at some point, there weren't that many more things to uh, electrify, right? So you start having things like the electric can opener or the electric knife, right? Um, people start putting electricity into things that don't need electricity because they're not really solving a problem that's a big enough problem. Um, it's not a problem worth solving, right? It's the electric can opener. My parents had an electric can opener when I was a kid. Um, nobody has an electric can opener today, I don't think. I've never seen one. Uh, I haven't seen one in, in decades. Uh, because it was a problem that it was, you know what, having a hand can opener is just fine. Um, and, and so I think about that now with computers. And, um, you know, are the some of the companies that are coming out today, are they solving problems that don't need to be solved, right? Um, or are they putting internet into things that don't need internet. Um, and, you know, I mean, and, and it's a kind of a, when you start thinking about like, all right, well, gosh, it, you know, our food delivery, like, you know, I'm delivering complete meals in a package that you can cook at home. Is that the electric knife of the internet age? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I, I, the, I think generally like, so, you know, um, Schumpeter, the economist, right, who the, the person who really was the first economist to study entrepreneurship and innovation a um, hundred years ago, uh, he, he always he's talked about this sort of unusual profit to entrepreneurship. Like the, the entrepreneur comes up with unusual profit. Um, and what he meant by unusual is things that are not normal. Um, and when you think about what normal profit is, normal profit is things like you're putting resources to work for what they're worth, right? So you're you have people working, and you pay them a certain amount, and you have uh, capital going to work for a certain amount, and the capital going to work has a, a risk and a return, and the risk and the return are linearly related, if you believe the uh, capital markets pricing theorem. Um, 
entrepreneurs are doing something different, right? They risk and return are not correlated, right? It's an unusual return. You're, you're making more money than the risk would suggest because of innovation. Um, so you ask yourself, well, gosh, are some of these new companies, are they really just normal? Are they just normal companies? Are they, are they taking a certain amount, of, certain amount of risk and getting a certain amount of return? And if that's so, then they're not really venture back. They shouldn't be venture backed because venture back, venture backing is different than normal investing, right? It's unusual investing. You're investing in things which are not better, but different. Um, so if you're just going out and saying, hey, this is going to make people's lives a little bit better. It's like, you know, not interested in a little bit better. A little bit better is what big companies are doing. Um, you know, Apple makes things a little bit better every year. Um, I want to invest in stuff that's doing something completely different. Um, things where you actually have to convince people to use it. You know, nobody has to convince anybody to use the iPhone 7 instead of the iPhone 6. Um, it's better, right? It's a little bit better. Um, but if you, if you don't actually have to go out and actually... If you don't have people telling you that your idea is stupid and won't work, um, if you don't actually have people that you have to really convince to change, if you don't actually have to change the environment around the, the thing, the, the solutions you're implementing, then maybe it's not an unusual company. Maybe it's just a normal company. Um, and if it's a normal company, then maybe it's not really a venture-backable company where you can't make venture returns. And this is sort of the, uh, you know, at the end of the power law post, I talk about how the, the power laws that seem to exist in venture, you know, the, the shape of the power law, uh, it's a power, it's a distribution, right? So it's a probability distribution. But the distribution actually has an infinite average, right? So if you take a normal curve, the, you know, the bell, the bell curve, the average of the bell curve is the peak of the bell curve. That's the average. Um, and you could say, well, on average, I'm going to get the return that's at the peak of the bell curve. If you take a power law curve, the average is technically infinite. Um, so what does that mean? I, I mean, it's kind of a interesting thing to think about. I mean, it, you say, well, it can't really be infinite, right? Um, and every time you say that, you have something like WhatsApp or Uber come out that are worth so much more than previous companies have been worth. You say, well, all right, maybe the average is actually pretty high. Um, and, and it seems to be growing. And the more we do this, the higher the average becomes. Um, I think that's, you can't say that's a normal company, right? Those aren't normal companies. Those are unusual companies. Um, that's not the kind of thing you can predict using you know, your typical risk return models, because the risk return models don't fit. Um, so the, you know, the question you have to ask yourself is like, in the deployment age, you have normal investing, right? You have a no normal, you know, bell-shaped return to investing. And as a venture investor, you, that's just not what you do. If you're doing that, you're a private equity investor, right? Or you're a bank. Um, as a venture, that's just, it's not, to me, venture investing. Sorry, this is. I'm getting into this part where everything is connected again. That's. Oh, I love it. Look, this is an education for me. This is an education for me, um, and for everyone, I'm sure. So, l let's talk about teaching. By the way, we we both teach. Uh, if if you're a Columbia student, definitely go towards Jerry's course, please. <laughs> Don't go towards mine. Um, but you, you know, you've been teaching entrepreneurship at the engineering school for a good number of years now. Um, you're, you're teaching another generation. The, the up-and-coming generation about innovation, about startups. Uh, give us a sense of your approach and, and what you're doing there. Uh, yeah, I, I, um, so I guess it's five or six years now, um, and, and I love teaching. It's, uh, I, I love and hate teaching. Um, I, I, you know, I, uh, <laughs> my family, there's, you know, it's, there's a bunch of kids, and nobody gets a word in edgewise, um, so I get to go up on in front of the class and I get to talk and uh, obviously when I get a, the chance to talk I talk a lot um, so it's awesome it's 
also frustrating because teaching entrepreneurship is uh, it's a funny thing. I mean, can you teach people to be entrepreneurs? Um, this was sort of the, the first question I asked myself when I started teaching. I said, well, how do you create entrepreneurs? And the, the tack I've taken is that, in fact, you don't actually have to teach people to be entrepreneurs. You, ha- you have to unteach them to be not entrepreneurs. Um, so if you go to parts of the world where big corporate jobs aren't available, um, where you know working for somebody else is unusual, everybody's an entrepreneur, right? People make money, right? They, they figure out how to or make money. They make things, um, and they figure out how to make a living. Um, people are naturally entrepreneurial. Um, and, and I think the... I think the education system uh, in in this country and probably a lot of developed countries is is geared towards teaching people to be middle managers, right? I mean, if you think about what they learn and how they learn it and the environment in the classroom, then really what we're doing is like, all right, let's let's prepare these people to be middle managers at you know Fortune 500 companies. Um, so I, I, a lot of what I'm trying to do is to unteach that, um, you know, to get people to really embrace that. You can take a big risk, um, or you can go into this really uncertain situation, but you're not. It, it, uh, let me rephrase that. You can go into a really uncertain situation, um, start a company, and you're not really taking that big a risk, right? You're, you're not. It's not like your company is going to fail. And I know this from firsthand experience. And you're going to be out on the street living in a box. Like that's not what's going to happen, right? You your company fails, and all of a sudden you get calls from everybody on earth saying, "Hey, you know, I hear your company didn't succeed. Can I hire you?" Um, can I back you? Can I, you know, what's your next thing? Um, and this is, you know, after losing Fred Wilson and Josh Kaplan's money, you know, some of the first calls I got after that company were from those guys saying, "Or what's next?" Right? Um, so it's teaching my students that it's that the risk they're taking is not as big as it looks from the outside, and that they they need to really embrace embrace the uncertainty. That if if they can have a five year plan uh, for their company, like sort of the old. You know, back in the day when they, people would give you a business plan, they'd have like a five-year financial forecast. If you can do that, you're probably not doing anything very interesting, right? Um, and, and so that's that's the thing is I really want them to embrace the fact that they're going into a world with they're, they're explorers, right? They're, they're setting out in a ship from Portugal in 1491, and they don't know where they're going, right? They're going in that direction. They don't know what they're going to find, um, and, and that's the business. So... Um, to do that, you know, the, the, certainly there's a whole piece of the, of the class, which is can I teach you some tools, lifetime value, cost of customer acquisition, some some actual useful tools in, in running a small business like that. Um, but but I really want to impress on them the difference between running a small business and running what you and I consider a startup, which is a business doing something that's more akin to exploration than just business building, right? Uh, I'm not teaching them to open a restaurant or a dry cleaner, which are can be incredible small businesses, but they're a different sort of business. Um, so it's it's that you know there are definitely some tools because they need them. That I I it's a bit of an immersion course where um, you know I, I'm trying to teach you to speak the language that you're going to have to speak if you're going to go raise venture capital. Um, I bring in speakers to the class. Uh, I think this is a, a actually the students like it the best um, listening to somebody other than me talk. Um, but it's really interesting. I, I try to bring in people who are in the middle of it, so entrepreneurs who are doing it at the moment. Um, you know, I, I, my first year, I brought in some entrepreneurs who had done it and exited and made a lot of money, and they all had the, the post hoc narrative that we talked about, where you know it was sort of the inevitable result of their genius. Um, but if you bring in people who are in the middle of it, they can't say that, right? They're talking about the problems they have today, you know, how they came up with the ideas, you know, how they how they got started, how they hired their first employees, uh, how they raised money. 
um, and had, how hard it is to do, um, but how rewarding it is to do as well. Um, so, you know, pretty much every entrepreneur I've had in has said something along the lines of, it's hard, it takes up my entire life, um, it's, you know, incredibly, you know, difficult to do this, but I would never do anything else, you know? Yeah, no, um, those are the most, the most riveted I, I ever see a classroom is when, as you say, someone who's right in the thick of it opens up and then you can hear a pin drop in the room. It just, everyone is just totally locked in on, on, on the speaker because it's so raw and you, you can get a sense of the, uh, the torment and intensity that, that the founders are experiencing. And it's, it's very effective. Um, you know, because you're giving them not only the tools and the language, but it sounds like you're giving them a lot of your trademark philosophy and, and learning about the mindset and what really is involved here. Big picture. Um, it's visceral when you get a founder like that who, who will open up. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I try to bring in founders when they're at some sort of pivotal moment in their company's life so they can describe that, you know, like what like the problem and how they're addressing it. Um, it's uh, it's great. The other thing I try to do is I, I, I try to teach them that they can't really know the future, right? Like he, predicting the future is sort of a fool's, a fool's game. Um, I, I remember, you know, back when Snapchat um, had an offer to be acquired for, I don't know what it was, I don't remember exactly, $5 billion or whatever, uh, and they turned it down, and I remember asking the class, like, okay, who thinks they should have taken that offer? And pretty much everybody raised their hand, and I said, all right, you know what, I want you to remember that. Remember how you voted on this, because in a couple of years, I want you to go back and think about that and see if you were right or not. And I don't know if you will or not, but I hope they all look back and say, like, wow, I was just completely wrong, you know, <laughs> because, you know, I think the idea of saying, like, you know what, you can't know the future, like, you, you think you do, and, you know, as, especially as engineers, you're taught to, you know, to build things that are fairly deterministic, but this isn't deterministic, right? So accept the fact that you, you don't know the future, you can't predict the future, and, and embrace it, right? That's the, the fact of not being able to, to know or predict the future is, is what gives us opportunities to build new companies, I mean, they're very lucky to have you there. You know, part of us being effective uh, teaching at Columbia or anyone teaching entrepreneurship at any school, university, what have you, is the richness of the ecosystem, right? We're getting the, the speakers to come in, right? Uh, take a subway uptown or wherever you're going and just pop into a classroom and, and, and to give you that. New York, uh, you, you, you know, you've been in this from the beginning. Um, you've seen it evolve over... 30 years in technology now. You know, the last five, six, seven, eight years have been great. But what, what do you see our challenges as an ecosystem as being right now? Yeah. Well, so before I get into the, the, the New York thing, I, I want to say that one of the great things about the entrepreneurial community is um, how much people want to give back. Um, this is actually what I really, it, it makes it a joy really to work in. Um, so I, I have found that I could pretty much call anybody any entrepreneur and say, will you come talk to my class at Columbia? And they'll say, sure. Like, no matter how busy they are, um, no matter where they are, they'll come to New York and talk. And and it's not because, like, they, they don't get anything out of it, right? I mean, people have gotten hired out of the class and whatnot, but it's not like, you know, finding a single employee is worth a flight to New York and, and spending um, an hour up in the boondocks at Columbia. Um, sorry, 116th Street. Um, it's, they, they really, they want to help others. Um, and I think that's, it's unusual. I mean, that, that was not true in the corporate world when I was there. So um, it's one of those things where, you know, 
people do that and you're like, you know what, this is, it's, it is awesome to work in this environment where people just, they want things to improve. They want people to be successful. It's just, it's awesome. Um, you know, I think New York, yeah, New York's definitely a hub. Um, it's not hard to get people to come to New York because they have to come to New York anyway. Um, you know, a lot of people who speak in my class are here already, but the ones who aren't are like, oh yeah, well, I, I need to be out there to talk to a client. Uh, I need to be out there, um, to talk to an investor. Um, so I'll, I'll just arrange my trip so that I'm, I'm there when your class is. Um, so it's, it's always been pretty easy to get people to come here and talk. Um, and I think it's, you know, I mean, I, I have, I've been in New York investing for, I started 20 years ago, I guess. Um, and 20 years ago, you could pretty much get all of the startup tech entrepreneurs into a single bar, right? And, and, and people did, right? So, no, I, you know. I, I was there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, we, you know, we were all there, right? Everybody's in the bar. Um, I, I don't think you could fit them all into Madison Square Garden now. Um, so it's, uh, it's grown a lot. It's great. Um, you know, even at Columbia, I think, uh, you know, when I started, one of the reasons I got involved in teaching at Columbia because I was a little frustrated with, you know, Columbia didn't emphasize entrepreneurship enough. They weren't engaged with the entrepreneurial community in New York enough. Um, and, uh, in complaining about this to to Chris Wiggins, who's a you know a teacher up there, professor up there, um, he's like you know he he was like really what do you think should be done? Uh, you know how do you think we could change that? I'm like well you need to get people from the industry up there teaching classes, and he's like well what kind of people? Um, and he kind of lured me down this garden path until he's like well all right yeah that's great if you want to teach you can teach. And I was like wait wait <laughs> did I just volunteer for that? Right, <laughs> genius. <laughs> uh, but it's you know even over the five, six years I've been teaching there. I mean, Columbia is obviously, you know, well, you know better than I do, has done a ton to become more engaged. Um, they have really focused on entrepreneurship as something that needs to be part of people's education there. Um, it's, you know, the five years, it's completely different. And, you know, um, you know, your, you know, what you're doing there, um, and what some other people are doing there, it's just, it's amazing. Um, and, and you really notice the difference. So, you know, this year in my class, this semester, there are, four or five people who either have started a company or are starting a company. Um, like they're actually in the midst of it. Whereas six years ago, pretty much everybody was just kicking the tires. Yep. You know, they're like, Oh, it's interesting. I don't know. Um, so it's become much more. And I, I'm not sure if that's uh, actually, I'm pretty sure it's because Columbia is attracting people who are like that, which they didn't in the past. Um, so people now, if they want to be entrepreneurs or they are entrepreneurs, they say, Oh, Columbia. Um, yeah, that's a good choice. Yeah. Like the, I can actually learn something there. I can be in New York. I can, um, figure things out. Um, it's a good environment to start a company in. Uh, and I, and I think that's a complete change from where it was five, six years ago, certainly a complete change from when I was there. Um, and, and it's great. I mean, it's, yeah. it's awesome. Well, a, lot, a lot of it has been, uh, putting the infrastructure into the, into the, the entrepreneurial infrastructure into the school. I mean, really the, the, I call it the tidal wave of university entrepreneurship was washing over these, you know, Ivy League institutions over those stone walls in the Ivy for a while, and the school was behind. Many of the schools were, um, but now you're seeing, you know, we have a lab downtown in Soho for our alumni entrepreneurs. We just launched a design studio this fall. We're getting entrepreneurship classes into our various, you know, schools that ne for the first time ever entrepreneurship course since 1754 we just got into the college last spring with uh, amal sarva who's been on the show and and damon phillips so you're starting to see 
the university meet the demands of, of this this next wave, you know, we're also trying to adapt the curriculum. I think that's a big part of it. You know, like digital literacy is a huge push into all the disciplines, law, medicine, journalism, etc. That that's a huge push that the whole the whole university is aware of and is trying to do. So I think for those listeners, you know, in the university environment, um, we're all, um, fig- you know, and no one's written the book on it, right? But we're all kind of figuring out how to, um, you know, give the next generation the, the best, the best education possible, the best skills, tools, mentality, right? To, to come out of, out of school with a head of steam. And, and I think it's, um, you know, it's, hard for people like you and me who work with companies where they can change everything overnight like oh you know what we have a problem let's completely change everything overnight the product the structure you know i mean it's it's hard to you know columbia is a you know if if it was a company it would be one of the oldest companies on earth right it's 300 years old there's um there's a lot of tradition um and changing what it's doing is is just it's hard and i you know i complained about this to to chris wiggins early on and he's like look you just, you know, it's a giant stone wheel, and you just got to, you know, if you can get it started turning, then, you know, then it's turning, right? It just takes a while to get things done. And I think the, the speed at which Columbia has managed to embrace an entrepreneurship is actually pretty astounding, even though it's been, you know, five years, um, you know, or more, five years for me, uh, more for you. Um, I think it's pretty astounding, the, you know, how much they've embraced it. It's, it's, it's great. It really is. It's very cool to see. And, you know, I got I to gotta say, uh, while we're on the subject, um, you know, the late Bill Campbell had a huge part in that because um, he and some of the other trustees uh, got together at some point and were talking with the president about this and really saw it as, as a push the university needs to make. So uh, uh, that guy was, was, was just fantastic for not only Silicon Valley, but, he, you know, he was the football coach at Columbia. He was a trustee and... Uh, Quiet. It was his personality to be quiet and humble about it, but my God, he had a huge influence on it, on us and shaped our our approach to things as well. Um, but you know, you, you mentioned the giant stone wheel of, of Columbia University, three hundred plus year old institution. How about the giant stone wheel of New York City? Uh, what 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 else do needs to be done? What are the main challenges? Yeah. So you know, it's fun. I think about this. People. Um, uh, I, I think actually partly because I'm associated with Columbia, um, people will call me from other cities, other countries, um, and want to talk about how New York became this entrepreneurial hub um, because they want to build their own entrepreneurial hubs. Um, and so they, they want to sit down with me and have me tell them how that happened. Like, how can we do this? How come, like, you know, how can you know, my boss, a politician, you know, change our city into being this entrepreneurial hub over, you know, the course of his administration? Um and I think it's, uh, you know, it's, I, I always have to give them the bad news that it doesn't actually happen over the course of an administration. Um, yeah, I think they, these hubs get built over time, right, and in, in cycles. So you have, you know, like, like we were talking about 20 years ago, there was, a, you know, a, a room full of people. Those people started companies. Some of those people were extremely successful. Um, and the people who were in their successful companies then left to start other companies. Um, but it takes you know, years for a company to become successful, five, six years at least. Um, and then other people leave. And so there's these cycles of um, company building and you, you can see it um, over time, right? So, you know, the 90s and uh, through the, the bubble bursting and then companies were either sold, people, some people made money, some people didn't, but people left and started a new wave of companies. And you see that through 2007. Um, and then again, there was the, you know, the financial crisis and 
um, people left and started out with other new companies, and then um, we just saw the current wave. Um, and, and although there's no nothing like the bubble bursting or the financial crisis to end that wave, it it does seem like New York has started to slow down over the past couple of years. Um, but I but I think that's actually. Uh, it just means that there's going to be a whole new group of entrepreneurs emerging in the next couple of years um, to start the next cycle. Um, and, I, and I think it takes, you know, it, it took Silicon Valley, I mean, how many cycles did it take Silicon Valley to become Silicon Valley, you know, starting with, with Hewlett Packard? Um, you know, it was, it was a lot of cycles, and it's going to take a lot of cycles for New York to become um, not a competitor to Silicon Valley, but to be a really self-sustaining innovation hub on its own. Um, I think we're halfway there. Uh, you know, so some of the kind of triumphalism that was uh, uh, everybody was talking about two, three years ago, and you know, New York is the next Silicon Valley. I think that's silly, right? I mean, there's no no next Silicon Valley, but can we? And and that's not right. The right goal. Uh, the right goal is can we create a entrepreneurial hub that is self-sustaining um, and can continue uh, developing these waves of entrepreneurs over time. Um, and how can we prevent that from derailing? And, and that's a question I think about. I, I don't know. I don't have an answer. I don't know what to do about it. But you, you, know, you look at, say, Boston. And Boston, I think, is actually sort of a case study in, in how that can get derailed. Um, because certainly, you know, after being the original entrepreneurial hub um, back in, you know, 50s and 60s with DEC and, um, you know, the companies that were founded back then, uh, it, it it totally got derailed um, in the early two, you know, early two thousands, like the late nineties, early two thousands, and um, and it hasn't really recovered. No. Um, and it, I don't think it's anything specific that you can point to say this happened. I, th- I think there is a certain amount of, um, you know, certainly the, it was interesting if you look at the entrepreneurs I backed in the nineties, the ones from Boston were on average fifteen years older than the ones in New York. Um, so there was, after that wave, I think a lot of people just retired instead of starting new companies, whereas the people in New York all went and started new companies, right? Um, because you're 30 years old, what are you going to do, like retire? Um, so I, I think there's a bit of that. There is a, the Boston companies were looking for people who are more seasoned and not willing to take the risk on new entrepreneurs. And I think that hurt them for a good 10 years. And, and maybe they're making a comeback now. Um, I was up there. I was up there a couple months ago, you know, the innovation district across, you know, in that area that used to, I can't remember the name of the area, but where um, General Electric just opened their plant and, or their offices. Um, it was, it was hopping. You should, you should actually go over there. It's, uh, one of my companies was there, had an office there because it was really cheap. And now it's full of young people, it's, you know, new companies, coffee shops, you know, it's what you expect when you walk into a, a place where a lot of startups are. Um, I, you know, I, I will say though, as a, as a side note, as a quick interruption, I look at what people are doing with their feet and, you know, no disrespect to Boston at all. I lived there for four years, but so many of the Boston VCs are on the Acela and the shuttle all the time. And they're spending all their time in New York now. And they're doing maps of the New York tech ecosystem and really trying to kind of blend in over here. So um, there, there must still be, there must be a strong sense that there's more going on in New York. Well, yeah. I mean, that's clear, right? I think uh, it's, if you went, I, I, I think the idea that if you create entrepreneurs in your city, then you are creating entrepreneurship is wrong, right? And you can go to university anywhere and then move, right? I mean, um, I think most people, maybe not most people, I don't know. It's easy to move when you're 21 years old. You just pick up and go somewhere else. Um, it's a little harder when you're older and you have family and ties and whatnot. But 
you know, so the the idea that like you know Boston has all these amazing universities and they're educating all these amazing people who could be great entrepreneurs. Well, that's that's awesome because then they can get on the Excel and move to New York. Um, if New York is a place they'd rather be, if it's a place where they feel like there's more opportunity, that's that's great. And I, I think the the focus. I mean, I think you know the idea in New York that like opening you know the Cornell uh, campus here was going to completely change the innovation ecosystem is just wrong. I think it's you know great. All of those people can become well educated here, and they could move back to Silicon Valley or wherever, right? I mean, I think the, the you have to create. Um, a reason for people to stay, not a reason for people to you know, be there in the first place. Um, you know, it's great to have more engineers available here, um, and I think things like you know, Google opening an office here and Twitter opening an office here has provided a lot more talent to the ecosystem that um, is committed to being here um, and wants to stay here and wants to do things here, um, whereas the university students, not so much. Um, I, I do think you know having places... I, I, Clearly, Stanford has had an influence on Silicon Valley, uh, a big influence. Uh, so I think having that sort of influence, um, but the, the influence wasn't just the students, right? It was the faculty, the commitment of the administration to the, the uh, ecosystem, that kind of thing, um, are more important than just having more students. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, you wonder in New York, um, you know, New York's a real estate town, right? It's it's pretty much run by the real estate interests. Um, and do they care about more startups? I think sometimes they do, right? When things are not so good, they want people to start companies and rent space. And when things are really good, they, you know, they don't really need it. Um, so I, you know, I, I think there has to be a continued emphasis on on creating this uh, hub here. Um, and I think declaring victory is is very premature. Well, listen, my friend, th- this has been extraordinary. Talk about giving back. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, your time, your wisdom. It's a real gift to us all. All the best to you, my friend. Thank you, Dave. It was great talking to you. Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know?